when I'm not sharpening my sword or being a talking dragon, I'm listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. And you should too. Fun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is Derek Sorrells, whom, among other things, with his family runs a record store in the out-of-the-way town of Providence, Kentucky. But about 20 years ago, he was a drummer in several notable bands, including Johnny Q. Public, The Frantics, and London Calling, and also backed-up artists such as Miss Angie and Phil Joel. Sorrells shares his story of starting out dreaming big in Kentucky and going on to live the life most of us only read about. I played in, me and friends would have, you know, bands that would get together and just jam. Nothing had really come of it, and then people in the area would get together and we'd play at the, the local um, talent show at the fair once a year, and we'd think, walk off, think we're a rock star. So then it'd be like, oh, you know, and then because you may have come in third place, and you played in front of a full house, but, I mean, they're up there really clapping for the little girl that did Annie, you know. And, uh, you know and, 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 hey, Annie beat yeah, us again. Yeah, yeah. It, that happened twice. Yeah. But um, when I was 20, I'd played in a lot of bands before this, but when I was 20, I actually, you know, I was so hungry, like, literally, I mean, Boxcar Willie could have called me and been like, I need a third uh, drum tech. You'd just be waiting in the wings in uh-huh. case somebody needs you. I'd be like, oh, all right, all right. Willie, you're my favorite. Yeah, yeah I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> but um, so I was just so hungry to do anything. I uh, answered this ad. It was Moonlight Booking Agency. But anyway, Is this I had like to... an offshoot of Moonlight Barbecue? <laughs> no, no. This was actually in around Chicago area. Okay. This uh, band in Chicago needed a drummer, touring band, Christian rock band and i'm like oh my gosh i'm ready you know mm-hmm. so i go and audition and get the gig and so i'm just like oh my god i made it <laughs> and um i moved up there for three months by myself actually i roomed with this person i don't even remember how I, but it was like probably three months of the most miserable times of my life living in a house with some strangers in chicago he was just weird. It was like the weird guy who was just like, just kind of creeps around the corner and looks at you. And then, you know, it's just one of those weird, strange. He had bizarre looking yeah. meat in the fr- freezer. Yeah, right. Something. Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer's cousin or something. I lived up there for three months. Then I got married. My well, wife. What was the name of the band? Stormfront. Stormfront. Okay, were they on a label? Or? No. Okay. No. no, they had label interest. Yeah, yeah. Don't we all? Mm hmm. Yeah. For the four months we were up there, we um, played one show. Uh, this was in 90. Two, and back then it was a one-bedroom efficiency apartment, and I was paying five fifty a month, which was oh, crazy high. Yeah, and, you know, and then um, you know we're both trying to my wife and I are both trying to work, and then I've still got the dream of thinking this band's going to take off. So you're married at this point? We we were married one month when we moved up. To, we got married and then lived up there together a month. And uh, was played, your wife in the same house as the creepy guy? No, no, no. We got our own apartment. Oh, okay, our own apartment at that time. Okay. Um, I don't know if you referred to your wife as the creepy guy. No, 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 <laughs> okay. no, she'd kill me. The creepy guy was in a world of his own, trust me. <laughs> um, so we played the one show, I think I made $14. was, you know, totally worth the four months <laughs> of, of misery. <laughs> we went to IHOP afterwards and spent all the money, and I was back to being broke again. And um, but I remember literally we were down to, like, we were both just like, oh, we, I can't do this anymore. This is just 
not for me. And of course I took the last $15 that we had. Now I went and talked to the landlord, you know, gave her my sob story. I just, mm -hmm. you know, I gotta get out of here. She's like, well, she was you know, from up north, so she wasn't very friendly. Mm -hmm. She just basically told me good luck. It'll never happen to, you know, you're not getting out of this. The only way you can get out of it is to sublease your apartment and nobody is gonna do that. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I was like, we said a prayer about it. I was like, let's just do it. Let's take our last $15, put an ad in the newspaper and take a chance. We got one phone call, the first phone call. They came and looked at it, right, just like that, and took it. And we literally, it was like a scene out of a movie. We packed up that apartment, I swear, in like 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and like her, we had called her sister and brother-in-law, and uh, they drove off to Chicago with a U-Haul trailer and picked us up. We loaded that thing, and we literally snuck out in the middle of the night. The guys found out I was gone. Oh, uh, the band. So that kind of, you know, I took the chicken way out, but I didn't want to tell them, you know, mm -hmm. and now it's different, you know, how you look back at things and be like, I want to sit down and talk to him, like, look, guys, I'm this is just right. not for me. This is a waste of time. But then I came back home and played around in some bands. So we're playing this talent show again at the, the local fair. We played this show, and this guy, he says, uh, makes a comment about my drum set, and we kind of talked a little bit back and forth. And Anyway, long so, story short. So a stranger came up to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he was playing in one of the other bands. And he just kind of said, you know, cool kid, blah, blah. You know, that turned out to be John. So we started this one band, the, the band called Homesick. One through this uh, transitional period with a, this different sound and then we moved on to this other sound. We actually started playing Rocket Town in Nashville quite often and uh, we became like, felt like the house band down there because they really, really liked us. Greg Strange kind of ran the place. Our singer looked exactly like uh, Liam Gallagher. I kid you not. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would like even like sing, like even hold his hands behind his back and shake the tambourine his head mm -hmm. to the hair. I mean, he looked just like him. But anyway, we, you know, kind of developed a pretty good following, you know. We were playing, like I said, Nashville seemed like two or three times a month. We'd play in Alabama and Tennessee. And so it felt like we were really getting somewhere. Yeah. And we were getting some little, a little bit of label interest. And, uh, well, they had this thing called, it was like the, the Fab Four. They took like the Fab, the, the best bands that played Rocket Town. And it was a really big scene there. You know, there's always people hanging out, whether they were there to play. There was be other bands there talking, and it was really cool camaraderie between all the bands. So we played this Fab Four, and the place was literally just shoulder to shoulder, and we got up there, and we're competing from this band from Alabama, and, uh, and around. Anyway, we ended up winning the thing, and we... Uh, I you think, didn't get beat out by a dancing goat or something? Uh, no, I think there was a dancing pig. <laughs> okay. Was, yeah. Uh, from, we ate him. <laughs> yeah, we ate him, yeah. I think the deal was, is if you won, you got free studio time with Greg Strange, who had a studio in the back. So we um, did that and um, recorded our demo or whatever. And Organic Records, who will kind of fit into the picture later, they uh, showed interest in us. They really liked us, so we met with A&R guy in the, one of the back rooms of Rocket Town. And turns out he used to be the manager for AHA. Remember the Take On oh, Me wow, band? Yeah, and it was sure. just like, anyway, I guess I should back up just a hair. Yeah, it was actually a little bit before all this happened. We um, had gone, uh, we were really big fans of Dakota Motor Company. So we went to see Dakota Motor Company. 
Which Peter King, yeah, that was his yes. name. He, he was had a surfer. his own surfing show or yeah. whatever on MTV or yeah. was a host, whatever. The Cotton River Company and then Hoy Pull Away. But uh, opening the show was some band called Johnny Q Public. And they come out, and I was like, who is that? I was like, I thought it was like some, you know, going to be some rap guy or something. Get up there, you know. And I was like, this yeah, is going to be a joke. Yeah. And they get up there, and literally, I mean, our jaws were on the floor. I was like, what is this? This is absolutely unfreaking real I cannot believe how good this band was. I mean, and, and the two guitar players were like 15. Everybody else was like, I think the Dan was like maybe, I don't know, 21. And, and the drummer, I was looking and we kind of made eye contact. And it was like, it was one of those, I know you, you know me. What the heck are you doing? You know, and then turns out it was Brian Duvall, who originally was from White Plains, Kentucky. And then he ended up moving to Springfield to play Springfield, Missouri, to play in these bands and, and other bands. And then he had joined Johnny Q Public. So anyway, we met after the show. We were like, oh my gosh, because he went to South Hopkins High School, which I, I went to West. So we would see each other at ball games, you know, because it would be the pet band and different mm-hmm. sort of things. So we kind of made a connection there. And just and then they took me on the tour bus and took us on the tour bus. And I literally thought they were millionaires, you know, and just thought, <laughs> oh my God, these guys are on. And I go back home and... You know, I'm telling everybody, you won't believe this, you know, because I got his number and, you know, he's telling me that he can do this and, you know, he can help me out. And I remember one time standing at a video audition tape for um, Audio Adrenaline. Brian's video on the thing because he knows the people, you know, knows the guys. He was on Goatee Records and mm-hmm. so knew all that. I didn't get the gig. And then um, he had also told me about playing with uh, DC Talk and he's a drummer. And I'm like, and this was right around the Jesus Freak mm-hmm. era. And what's weird is the. 15-year-old guitar player, I think it was 16 by then, for Johnny Q, wrote that song, Jesus Freak. Really? And he even ended up playing with him for a while. So Brian tells me about the audition with DC Talk. It's going to be like $500 a night. It was like a three-month tour, and I'm just like, wow, what? <laughs> That's so, good money now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and then it was like, I don't know, like... $50 a day per diem, and then, of course, hotel, and everything, all the perks of being on the road in a band that has unlimited access to food and money, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, I go down and play the songs, and, and not pat myself on the back at all, but I, I nailed the songs. I absolutely nailed I walked away feeling good, and they shook my hand, great job, blah, blah. But, I mean, of course, there was like six other drummers in line. Well, guess what? All those other drummers go in there. Half of them already have a name for themselves in Nashville. And nobody really knows who I am, so they're thinking they'd just be some freak, you know, that's going to, you know, go crazy in two weeks down the road and be a psychopath, you uh-huh. know, for all they knew. I don't sure. I, mean, I don't know, but I'm just, just looking back on it. Right. You know, they probably want somebody that they had some background on. And I remember the drummer for, like, White Cross being there. And I was actually living in Providence, big city where I live now. I remember back in the days of caller ID, I see this 615 number. And I'm like, oh god, this is either going to be the end, you know, beginning of the end. I was like, so like nervous to answer the phone. I answer the phone, 
they're like, this is so-and-so, the management with DC Talk, and listen, you did a great job, and I knew where it was going. Mm -hmm. You did a great job on the audition, but unfortunately, we've chosen somebody else. We wish you nothing but the best of luck. Well, that's nice that they would call. They was, absolutely, but of course, it was just like, you know, yeah. <laughs> dagger to the heart, and I'm just like laying on the couch, like completely about in tears, you know, just like about the, you know, I just couldn't believe it. So, Homesick, you know, we had uh, had this label interest, so we met with the manager for this is organic organic mm -hmm. and they were basically like kind of independent label but you know you know i remember him setting us down and be like you know what guys you know if we did work this deal out he's like you know it's not going to be a lot of money involved you're not going to have like an advance or anything like that it would basically be you, know, you recording and you go out on the road you're gonna be in a lot of mcdonald's you'll be planning to you know, ride together in a stinky van and around the country and we're just like you know both of us was you know for it and uh, one of us, I'm not going to go into the names, it doesn't matter, but he really wasn't crazy about the idea because of the financial reasons. Sure. But anyway, it ended up not working out anyway. The band kind of self-imploded. And then all of a sudden I get the call out of the blue from Brian Duvall, and he tells me that uh, Miss Angie, who had just signed to Murder Records and just recorded an album, she needed a touring band. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm all over this. Mm -hmm. You know, this is amazing, you know. And so basically the whole band of Homesick went and auditioned. She chose me. And I'm not being like, hey, she chose me. I'm like, yeah. this was terrible. That's not it at all. Right. It's just she chose me. Because Matthew, I think at the time, was he was really young. So uh, she actually was at the audition? Yeah, she was there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And see, she is... Because I assume DC Talk wasn't at the audition. Yeah, they were, actually. Oh, really? Well, the only one that wasn't there was um, Toby uh, Mack. Toby Mack. But the other two were there. Okay. Played with uh, Miss Angie. She was very particular. She's really funny and quirky, almost like a cartoon character. Mm -hmm. But I remember her telling me she wants everything exactly the way it was on the CD. Like, down to, like, the way the cymbal crash hits. I mean, just, a, a, like, a certain... You know, if he hit, instead of a crash, the bell. I mean, mm -hmm. once it mimicked, but I remember going to SIR, and I remember the, the label head being there, and then some other guys, um, one of the publicity guys, and a lot of people there, so it was kind of intimidating because, you know, here I had just joined this band who had a major deal in the Christian world. This guy, he's part of Murray Records, and he comes up to me, and we're playing the songs, and he stops, and he goes, all right, Derek, I just really need you to lay into that bass drum. Just lay into that bass drum. Every time you hit it, just lay into it with your whole one. And I'm just like, all right. So I hit it the same way I did every time. And he was like, that's what I'm talking about. Really? And nothing yeah, changed. He's like, nothing changed. It's like he just needed something to say, I think. Right, right. But over time, John, who was in Homesick, he ended up coming in auditioning again because Brad and Sean, or Stretch, uh, they were getting too busy with Johnny Q, so they didn't have time. So she had to find somebody to. So I said, well, give John another shot. So she lets John come up, and he gets the gig. And then the other guitar player, Chris, who was in it, uh, he stayed, and then they found a bass player. Well... We go on the road, we find out we're going to play these spot shows starting out with Guardian. And I'm just like, what? It was just amazing. She had a brand new Dodge conversion van that had built-in TV VCR combo. Wow. So when you go from like driving two or three cars to shows, shoved in every 
area of a vehicle and you're, you're on top of one another and you're you're scraping to get by all of a sudden you're making this decent salary a week and you've got money for food for them and then you're staying in these heist hotels in a brand new van literally you thought you've won the musical jackpot incredible experience loved it absolutely loved it it was just like i was on top of the world all of us were because i went from pretty much struggling trying mm-hmm. this that playing here and there and then all of a sudden we go to this She's like goes on this major tour with Guardian and Believable Picnic, who will get into the picture later. I love Angie. She's great. She's just real quirky mm-hmm. and just kind of funny and real particular. And but when you're starving musicians and you're like, you're not used to having the access to you know food and really nice hotels i mean because we're talking like five-star hotels really? you know, like the sleep mass land on the so she pillows. was that popular oh yeah yeah she got she got really popular um I used to live in a cave more than i realized <laughs> well this was 97 yeah I 97 uh when hers when it came out it was uh, 100 million eyeballs and she had the song lift my eyes up so if you ever go on youtube you can look that song up it's got the video i'm in the video oh, okay and it was produced by stephen yake productions so i was talking about all that to say this so she tells you she goes you know you've got room service and um you know you can just order you some food whatever <laughs> of course we're used to you know you know the gas station you know bag of chips and a Slim Jim and a Coke, you know, and so we get there, man, and literally it's like it's on. We walk in and we order four guys. We order so much food. By the time we got done eating all that food, I can remember everybody's in the corner, and I remember Jimmy from. I can still picture this to this day. He's in the corner with his pants unbuttoned, just going, oh, oh. I'm so sick. I mean, literally, I mean, it was like the waiter came in like four different times. was bringing like just trays and trays of food. So is this when your diabetes kicked in? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> this went on for like three or four days. It was the Harvey Hotel in Texas. So on the last day, the morning, we're getting ready to check out. And Angie's like, she calls us. is like, we're getting ready to check out. And John's like, <clears throat> well, I ordered me some breakfast. <laughs> of course, I'm just like, Ugh. And me and Chris said we're not hungry, but John and Jimmy... Uh, they uh, took full advantage and they're like, well, this is our last, you know, let's, let's order breakfast. So they get breakfast and one of them, they didn't even eat it. They just got it just to have and snack on later. But they end up leaving on the back of the trailer or the van. And oh, no. We pull up to the front and Angie's like, I want to run in and check out. She comes back out furious. And we're just like, we could see the look on her face like she is. Nine kinds of pissed. <laughs> and, uh, comes out and she has like a $2,800 food bill. Oh my goodness. And she is like livid. <laughs> How am I going to pay this? I can't send this to the record label and pay this. And we're like, I don't know. We didn't know there was like a limit. Okay. How did she pay it? I really don't remember. And I just never really ask again. Here's what's weird is while I was playing with her, I was moonlighting, playing with Johnny Q Public too because Brian had, was out of the band, Brian the drummer. Of course, like I said, loved that band and used to drive around listening to their cassette in my car thinking, God, these guys are unreal. And then I get the chance to go auditions. They would need a fill-in or they really, later on they wanted me to be their drummer. 
and Miss Angie, I was the only one married at that time, so I needed to bring home a little income, which I was doing okay. Mm-hmm. So when I'd go play with Johnny Q, I would have to ask for a little money, and they always gave me a hard time over that. But so uh, they weren't as big as Miss Angie. Yeah. Oh, they were. Their video was on MTV. Uh, really? Yeah. They got. Yeah. They were. Yeah. They were doing really, really well. They just. Well. They were a little more thrifty. Basically, they didn't pay twenty eight hundred dollars food bill. Anyway, I can remember playing with Johnny Q, one of the shows. Uh, I will say this, then I'll move on to this thing. One of the best shows I ever played in my life was uh, we opened up for Jars of Clay right when their song Flood was just, you know, I mean, right. huge. I opened up for them at um, Kingdom Bound in Darien Lake, New York at the amphitheater there. And there was like 10,000 people there. And I remember it was just like a, a moment in time. I've still got the... I've got so much stuff on home video. I like on, and people used to crack on me. Be like, oh, "You always got that stupid video camera." And no, they're now they're you. like, "Man, I would, you got copies of that?" I'm like, well, you were making fun of me, you know. <laughs> but I remember that show in particular just being so surreal mm-hmm. because the crowd is just absolutely crazy. And I, I remember hitting the kick drum in sound check, and it's like punching me in the back. Like, why well, had these two, you know, uh, monitors, and it's just like, <laughs> and I just, anyway, I get up there, and just, it is just a surreal experience, because it's just like a sea of people, and they're singing along to all the songs, and then, I didn't even pay any, any attention earlier in the sound check, but I remember sitting there playing along, and, and I happen to look up, and there's these giant movie screens on both sides of the stage, and I look up, and I see myself, and I'm like, oh. God. I'm thinking, how did I get here? How did I get so fat? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I just it was a wide angle lens. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, you know, I just couldn't even believe it. Then I'm like, how did this little guy from Kentucky, who's uh-huh. nobody, all of a sudden he's playing in New York yeah. and there's ten thousand people and he's on this big screen and he's signing autographs afterwards. And, You're giving us all hope, man. Yeah. Maybe false hope, but <laughs> well, another. When it was with Angie, we were playing the National Catholic Youth Convention in Kansas City. There was 18,000 people there. The Grits was there, Sixpence on the Richard was there, and this was about the time they were about to, but they had just started to break with Kiss Me. Mm-hmm. We stopped at a truck stop, and Angie's mom, who was kind of working as a manager, she calls her motor and tells them we're so-and-so hours away. And he says, well, it's now up from 18000 to 21000 And I'm like, what in the world? And so I've got this one on video, of course, too. We get up there, and we do the sound check, and it's great. And then we get up there to play, and literally I have no monitor. I cannot hear anything, and all I can hear is the crowd. And I'm literally playing everything by memory. Wow. But somehow we all kept it together, and we finished really? it. And so you couldn't hear the band? No, it was like just really distorted and muddy. And, oh, and it was just like, so literally it would just be count off and I would play these things by memory. I'm just like going through the motion because we, when you're on tour, obviously you play these songs night after night after night after night after night. Right. So they just become second nature to you. I mean, but anyway, afterwards I can remember, this is right around the time of the real world was real popular too. Mm-hmm. And remember Rachel and Puck and all them. I totally missed all of that, but I remember it being very popular. Yeah. yeah. Well, Rachel, who was like one of the major main stars on there, she was like the announcer uh, spokesperson that night. So we're like hanging out. Was she out. religious? That's uh, Catholic. Well, well, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, she's religious. No, yeah. she's Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I can remember us backstage riding around on a golf cart with her, like, mm-hmm. you know, just talking and just like, you know, 
it was all just crazy at mm-hmm. the time, you know, thinking just, this girl's on MTV. I just saw her like, you know, six months ago and, and she's been on these talk shows. And, and anyway, it was just all very, very cool to be happening. So anyway, the whole thing with Miss Angie, uh, it just got kind of a little too uh, unsure and we didn't know what was going on. And even though she was about to record another record, it was just, we weren't out really happy. You know, even though we were, you know, out touring and doing everything we wanted to, we just got to the point where we weren't happy anymore. Mm-hmm. I remember I was the first one that bailed, and everybody else kind of followed suit. Mm-hmm. That must have been a big decision. It to, was a huge decision to walk away from that. It was very. Did bizarre. you come back to Kentucky or? Yeah, well, I, I never left. Oh, Kentucky. you never left. I, that right. was the what was the coolest thing about it. It was so cool because I was I just had the best of both worlds. I was still living in Madisonville, mm-hmm. and John and I would we would take turns. And like we would drive six and a half hours to Springfield, leave our car and get in the van and go and be gone for like a month. Mm-hmm. Come back to Springfield, get in the car, go back home. And basically everybody would hang out at the, uh, the guitar player for Johnny Public. It was his parents' house. They lived in this big mansion type house. And it was like, Where really was this at? Springfield, Missouri. Did you see any bad things during that time? Uh, or was it all pretty much fun? Or you mean in regards to what? The things that were just like uh, maybe tragic or like the kind of the downside of fame and fortune and all that. Kind um, of stuff. Well, I can tell you this that I mean you don't have to name names. No, right? I'm not. But just because it says Christian, it's not. It well, don't mean anything. Like if uh, youth pastors around America, if they really knew what went on. They would be taking them to see regular bands. They'd be taking their youth group to go see regular bands. Mm-hmm. That is the truth. Because I and then in me, I had rather go up and see a band that I know is real and normal and what they do, even if they are, you know, doing whatever they're doing, than to be mm-hmm. up there basically being a, a, a mockery, mm-hmm. you know, just to sell albums and whatever. And um, like a couple of years ago, I was taking one of my friend's kids to play around, and and there was a guy there with his kid. And we got to talk and couldn't find out he had been in a Christian band. Really? And, yeah. And uh, he said he got out of it. And uh, I, I can't remember what the actual reason was, but he said a big factor was the, the hypocrisy. And this was just oh, a couple man. years ago. Really? I said, and what do you mean? He said, like, there's no conviction whatsoever. He mm-hmm. said, you wouldn't believe the amount of drugs I saw being yeah. done in, in the mm-hmm. studios. I'm like, well, really? Yeah, it's nuts. He didn't say names, but I mean. I went down into this uh, session work this, uh, one time in Nashville. The studio was owned by um, very... If I said the name of the band, you would know right mm-hmm. off. Uh, and they had been there the night before doing some pre-production or whatever. So I show up the next day just to do the session work. There's beer bottles everywhere in beer can. I'm just like, what? I was like, if youth pastors could eye in on this stuff right here, <laughs> sales would plummet. And but I mean, they're so blind, you know. They think, you know, instead of taking them to, you know, back at the time, like Stone Temple Pilots was like the devil. No, let's go take them to see. You know the Stone Temple preachers, you know, because they're the real, they're the real thing. Yeah, is that a real band? No, but I, I really don't know. I came up with that, but that's actually pretty clever. I think there's the Stone Temple preachers. That's pretty good. Wow. Yeah. But, but, uh, those little things they used to have at the Christian bookstores. If you like, yes, M- uh, Metallica, you might like yes. um, Uranium like or whatever. Yeah. So silly. I've heard people that were involved in the industry say, you know. We were a band doing what we did, and mm-hmm. you know, somebody else came up with those lists. We didn't think we sounded like yeah, know, exactly. White Snake or whatever, but yeah. You know. 
you left Miss Sanity. And so, John, because we all got the itch to play still, because we're still not at the burnout point at all. I mean, what did you think? Like, well, what are you going to do for a living after this? Yeah, I mean, that was pretty much it. Well, that was, yeah, it's always in the back of your mind. You're in the working at Ferrell's or something? Or? Yeah, I'm pretty much. Uh, <laughs> but let's see, what did I do when I first came back? Well, I, what had happened was, when I came back, Viva Voce, it was a man and wife duo. They used to be in one of the bands that played backing up in Rocket Town. They were in the Fab Four. Like he was in one band, she was the vocalist of another. Well, anyway, they ended up forming this other band. I found out they needed a drummer for a two and a half week tour. But before that, I back up with Angie. We did a, uh, I guess about a three week tour with Sixpence Done the Richer, which was awesome mm. because that was right when they were just exploding. And I can remember going back after I left Angie, left Angie and seeing like on Conan, and I was like. And me and John are at his house, and we're watching this, and we're just like, we were just hanging out, like, uh-huh. talking to these guys like it was nothing. Here they are on Conan, uh-huh. and we're sitting in Madisonville. <laughs> it's like, how did that happen? And we're, we, you know, yeah. but anyway, so I went out and did this little tour with uh, Viva Voce. Started out good. I uh, ended up absolutely miserable. I wanted to hang myself at the end of it. They didn't like me. But we just didn't get along well. Mm-hmm. Nice people, just uh, kind of weird being in that man and wife dynamic mm. with them all the time. It was just always so, just at times could be so tense and like, <laughs> and like I remember one time we, we weren't pulling a trailer, we were in a van and we had the back seat out and we'd blow it all of our gear in there. And I remember she had this Fender Twin uh, amp that was a vintage, nice amp. And it, we had it, it was sitting in between the two uh, captain's chairs in the, in the middle between I and the base, myself and the bass player. And I remember we stopped at Wendy's to the drive-thru on the way to the next show. So it was back when I used to order as cheap as possible. <laughs> I ordered like a plain baked potato and um, a, a small chili. And I would just take the chili and pour it all over it. And on the like, potato? Yeah. yeah, and it was great. And she, I remember her saying, oh honey, he's making, he wouldn't, wouldn't say, Derek, you're making me nervous. She'd say, oh honey, he's making me nervous back there next to my Fender Twin. Whoa. And I was like, what with this chili? I said I was going to use your twin as use the grill cloth here on the front as a strainer to get the grease out. Do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then just she didn't appreciate your humor. No, and, and just and then it was just create awkward tension because he that was his wife and yeah. Sure. And anyway, towards the end, it was totally a hundred percent mutual. I wanted out. They wanted me out, uh-huh. and I was very thankful to be out. All right. <laughs> um, but we had, uh, we would do this tour with uh, Joy Electric. Morales Forest, but it was all these indie indie Christian bands. Yeah. It was really cool. Talking about Ronnie from Ronnie from Joy Electric. Yeah, he was real eccentric and like, alright, bro. All right, bro, totally California, bro. Hey, he's a really cool guy, but just really like, eh. You know, and like, <laughs> I had the video camera out, and I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, bro, I'm serious. Bro, get the camera out of my face, bro. Bro, seriously. Like, I'm not kidding, Derek. Get the camera out of my face, bro. Bro. Anyway, so that ended, and uh, and then John and I, and Matthew, who had played in Homesick before, we had gotten in contact with him, so we decided to start this band. So we used to start try. We're auditioning all these singers, and of course, we're used to you know playing with you know good, great singers, and you know. You're auditioning in Madisonville. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Well, I mean, they found you three, right? So. Right, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> anyway, so we um, ended up, Chris, who was the guitar player Miss Angie, he calls out of the blue, and he's like, hey, what do you guys think about starting a band? And we're like, holy crap, for real? And, they, and he comes down, and it's just like, you know, it's just like the stars align. It was like, <laughs> and it just was perfect. And it was just like, this is the sound we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And things are going great. We go to Nashville and record a demo with Jade, who was in Believable Picnic, which we toured with with Miss Angie, and was kind of shopping it around, playing a few shows um, in the tri-state area. Because Chris actually moved from Springfield all the way down to Evansville, Indiana, because he didn't want to be too much away, too far away from the city. He has to be in somewhat of a city. So you know, we're kind of shopping it around or whatever, and hadn't really heard anything yet. So in the meantime, Johnny Q Public is still badgering me in a good way to get me to join the band and I'm like man I just can't I just I can't financially justify it because my first son had been born mm-hmm. and um, this one right here that one right there that long haired hippie freak yeah. right there yeah get a job <laughs> get a <haircut. laughs> yeah and a real job <laughs> yeah. and um, so I couldn't justify you know um, packing up and moving all the way to Springfield when I didn't know what was going to happen and uh, not knowing I was going to have a steady paycheck because you know once you have a kid you get kind of you know, you'd like, well, I got a little more responsibility I got to have. But I still have to drive 100%. Said all that to say this. So I'm Johnny Q is still asking me to fill in for him some. And I'm like, okay, I will. So this one in particular, they were showcasing for Roadrunner Records, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've heard of Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. They're secular, right? Oh, yeah. 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 I went up and played this place called The Juke Joint in Springfield. And it was a great show. But before, I remember meeting the A&R guy from Roadrunner. And he was like this seemed like he was seven feet tall he looked like a sean connery like the hair gray hair and a ponytail and he's, mm. he's english british you know and black trench coat he talks like this right here talking like that and talking and oh and oh your name's dad you know and, and anyway so we're up there to play we played the show and we get done and he walks over to the side of the stage and he walks up to me and he says you're an amazing drummer because you could play for acdc dream theater pantera you're an amazing drummer amazing and i'm like what this is insane i was like i'm joining the band i am freaking joining this band just showcase for roadrunner screw the frantics mm-hmm. i'm doing this so this is back in the day of pay phones i'm like i couldn't get my drums torn down fast enough so i run out and i call my wife and i'm like melody you're not gonna believe this he just told me amazing drama and i'm like ah. mm-hmm. i was like i'm joining johnny q public i'm doing this i'm gonna do it and she's, you know, she's, oh, this is so exciting. That's so neat. That's so cool. You know, I can't believe that's happening. I can't believe he told you that. I'm like, I can't either. And just, and then she goes, well, I got something to tell you. And I'm like, what? And she's like, well, John just called a few minutes ago. And they want you down in Nashville Saturday for a showcase. Like, you're freaking kidding me oh, wow. with the frantics. Wow. So anyway, we went and um, did the showcase. And the at the time, they said, you know, we're going to, it was for Organic slash Pamplin, who was the parent company, ended up becoming the parent company of Organic, took over, and they had a lot more money than the original Organic did. The president at the time told us, you know, oh man, you guys, we're taking you straight to the top, I'm going to shop you straight to Atlantic, we're going to give you the deal. They took us out afterwards, and Jade, our producer, had he had met with them, and they're, they're wanting to do this for you, and this for you, and this for you, and... We're literally just like, oh my God, this is really happening. This is really happening. 
So then we go record like in the Sound Kitchen in Nashville, actually in Franklin, which is a very notable studio, and it was just unreal to play there. Remember, we did our pre-production for the album, and the soundboard that they had was the soundboard that they used on the Journey Frontiers record. And that was just like, what in the world? It's crazy. But anyway, we end up going to the big boy room. We record the full record there. Steve Marcantonio was our engineer who had worked with John Lennon, Jay Giles Band, all these people. And we recorded this record and we turned it into the label. recorded 10 or 12 songs they said that they needed more uh, Jesus driven songs which to be quite honest, honest with you the Frantics weren't shopping a Christian deal this basically fell on our lap and it was like okay well do we sit around here and just twiddle our thumbs or because we had obviously had some experience in the Christian music industry or do we take this deal that's been given to us and there's possible mainstream distribution and, you know, getting with these labels, Atlantic, whatever. So we, we took the deal. They needed four more songs that were more Christian. So we wrote these four more songs and, and two of them to this day, I still, one especially makes me sick to even listen to it. But, um, Is this not good? No, it, it's terrible. And it's like, thank God it didn't make the record. Uh-huh. Oh, Lord, it's embarrassing. Just to even, it gives me chills. That should be a song right there. Thank God it didn't make the record. <laughs> yeah. It gives me like it chills when I, it, last time I heard it, it gave me like embarrassment chills. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, turned in those four more, four other songs. And he's like, okay, we want you back in the big boy room where this it was the biggest room in the, in the studio. And we found this out later, but they actually kicked Vince Gill out of that studio to move him to another one. He was in there working on an album. And they kicked, because the, the, the guy, the president of the label at the time, he owned the studio, him and his brother, who, Dino and John Elefante. Yeah. You know them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that obviously they could make the call and do whatever they wanted, because they, Dino was like all about the Frantics. He mm-hmm. loved the Frantics. He was the president of mm-hmm. Organic, and he really loved us getting ready to go on a tour and of course there was downtime because they had to get the record ready and all the publicity and the magazine to get all that stuff going and so in the meantime I'm working at a temp agency doing these crap jobs that I you know I was like I just signed a freaking record deal yeah. man I got this small advance but I shouldn't have to be doing this shouldn't have to be filing papers uh-huh. while I just recorded in freaking Franklin and starting to rub shoulders yeah, with I the big Vince Gill out of, it, yeah. out of the studio yeah. so I'm starting to like you know, thinking, man, you know, what's going on? But Because it seemed like the wait time was forever. Yeah. Finally, we ended up, we started playing these festivals everywhere. We went on a tour with Petra. But kind of right before this, the the president shifted gears, and, and Dino got moved somewhere else, and another guy got brought in. And we weren't really his favorite because... Um, so you were the stepchild. Basically, yeah. yes, because we weren't the, uh, you know, um, doing the Yoo-Hoo drinking contest and... You know, um, uh, and, you know, he was really into, I don't want to really mention names because I'm actually, I mean, I'm friends with him on Facebook and stuff, but I mean, like, I can remember, for instance, him telling us, you know, we need to do these effing altar calls that sells records. Dang. Uh, this is the producer? No, this was the president. And uh, we were like, oh, this is, that's not our style. It's like, we're just entertainers. We're not right. evangelists. We're not Christian evangelists. We're just entertainers. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you can be a plumber and 
and be a Christian and fix the faucet right. without having to preach when you go in to fix your faucet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your plumber doesn't preach you? No, not usually. Last Mine time does. he did, I we'll said, stop. you're a false prophet. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you're just doing going through the motions. Yeah. Anyway, they just wanted us to uh, turn into something that we weren't mm-hmm. at all. Of course, um, I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place, mm-hmm. but I'm just thinking of things that little bit at a time, but as we were in the studio recording, backing up some, you know, we're like, who wants steaks? You know, they'd be like, who wants steaks tonight? We're like, yeah, steaks, all right, it's all on the label. <laughs> Dummy. You gotta uh, pay that back. A record, yeah, a record deal is basically a bank loan. Yeah. And you bet at the time, you're like, oh, yeah, give us, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, order, yeah, order two of those. <laughs> Idiots. Now, looking back on it, but just green and stupid and didn't uh-huh. know and excited and in the moment. And... It's been five years. So when the album came out, like, you know, at at record labels, they have stacks and stacks of all the bands that are on the label and that people within the company and other companies could come by and get. Well, they couldn't keep ours in. You know, ours was like always out because everybody, we were kind of like the talk of the area of the Nashville, the new band coming out. And Mm -hmm. you remember when the V bands were popular and our stick was the four guys in ties. We always wore loose ties, kind of like the knack. That was our look, just the ties. So um, we got put on this tour with uh, Petra and the Waiting. That was cool. And uh, we found out later that we had to pay, of course it came out of our budget, we had to pay Petra $500 a night to play with them. Really? To open up, that came out of our budget, of course. And we're not getting anything for the shows. Nothing. Strictly just exposure. So, I mean, we would drive these 12, 14 hours just to Terrible. play. Yeah, I mean, but it's just part of the thing. But here's kind of a funny story for you and how naive we were. So here we are. We would like be out, and we didn't wouldn't have money half the time for hotels, you know, motels, because we'd be literally like, "Please buy our t-shirts." And we'd play these huge places. <laughs> Please buy our t-shirts. We need gas money to get home. And like everybody was like, "Ha ha ha!" Yeah. <laughs> like, "No, we're serious." You know, it's like wanting to get up there and say that we're serious. We need to get money to the next gig. So yeah. we'd be out panhandling, yeah. like chase people in the park. Hey, buy our CD. Yeah. You know, things were really uh, looking good for the Frantics, going well. We, um, you know, we got on a, a soundtrack uh, for the movie Tribulation that uh, had Howie Mandel and Margot Kidder and Gary Busey. We kind of got put in after the fact. We weren't in the movie, but we were on the soundtrack, huh. which is really neat. And yeah. things were starting to happen. We were starting to um, gain some interest, you know, outside interest, you know, like from mainstream and that kind of thing. And, and in the meantime, we had found out that Phil Joel uh, oh, from the Newsboys, uh-huh. he had just done a solo album. So in the downtime for the Frantics, he needed a band. He had heard us, have seen us, or whatever. So we'd go out and play these shows with him. Is that the long hair guy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, from. Um, but he's old clock this right here, crikey. So we're playing these shows with him, and the Frantics had gone out and played. Um, we were playing these. The Christian festival was like, was like the thing to do when you're back in the day. To play Because you're always playing to God knows how many people in the crowd. Right. And uh, all the big ones, we were fortunate enough to play those. I've done some with Miss Angie and Johnny Q Public, and that was awesome, too. What were the, the fest names at that time? Like uh, Kingdom Bound, uh, Cornerstone, uh, Tom Fest, Creation, that was one. But this one we played was uh, at Laguna Seca Raceway, California. So we fly out as, and to play for Phil Joel. The reason I'm telling you about this is he played with the DAT machine. You know, I had a DAT, you know, all the. Uh, 
we're playing Laguna Seca Raceway. We're under this huge tent, and there's like all these screaming, rabid Phil Joel fans. Because, you know, it's the, you know, he's with the newsboys. He'd been using this one DAT machine, but I'd, I'd gotten somewhat comfortable with that because I'd have to be the one to start. Well, explain song. that. So basically, there's. You had the actual live band playing, but you're playing along to the DAT machine. Yeah, playing all the tracks you're playing, and, and then you got the background so, vocals, and, uh, and so you're the, okay. playing on top of this stuff. So he like comes back and gives me like a four-second tutorial on that DAT machine. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. He's like, yeah, he press this, well, you do this right here, and you do this, like that. and he pressed that with it. All right, Derek, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, what? I don't know what. And they're like, please welcome. Look at this thing right away. Phil Joe. He's like, go for it, Derek. And I'm like, Play. and I erase the entire oh, thing no. out with one push of a button. He's like, Derek, what did you do? And I'm like, I don't know. The band's waiting on me. Everybody's looking at me. And I'm just like, I don't know. So we ended up just starting off the songs, just playing them. Did it go okay in the end? Yeah, it ended up going okay. But man, I, I wanted to crawl in that bass drum of mine and roll <laughs> off the stage and like just roll down the them them because I literally erased the whole all eight ten songs. I erased the I don't even know how I did it. I, that shouldn't even have been possible. Tell me they had a backup tape. They did, uh, but it wasn't with them, uh, and it just I remember just he was screaming and. and if you think Well, we're going to press pause for the time being, but in the next episode, Sorrells will conclude his story, which I'll just tease you by saying this. Part of it involves Gene Simmons' unwashed hand. In the meantime, if you're still in the mood to hear more drummer stories, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 161, where we chat with Aaron A. Train-Smith, whom beat the skins for The Temptations, The 77s, Romeo Void, Rich Mullins, and others. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 